So I'm Nicholas Davenport. You might also know me as Mr. Mental Muscle. And we're here at my facility, Mind Body One, here in Deerfield Beach. And we have Alani Whitaker. You can do this herself. Hi, guys. I'm Alani Whitaker, creator of Power and Humanity. And yeah, excited for this conversation. We actually met about a year ago, almost a year and a month or so. I think it was June last year at a, a group a mental fitness class. And basically, I reached out because I was like, hey, we're doing a lot of similar stuff. And I'm like, we could talk about some things. She came by, talked for like a good hour and a half. That low key should have been recorded in itself. But hey, now we got it going. So now we can do it on camera. That's true. And we can dive even deeper. So what you got? You got some topics. I think they're pretty good. So let's let's go through. So let's go through it. Okay. So I have two topics. I'm going to let you choose. But okay. You have to choose either one or two. Okay. What's, what do you choose? Oh, it's a mystery. Oh, yeah, it's a mystery. So you get to choose which, what we start with, but you don't know which is which. Okay. So um, I was number two for a while in sports, so I'm going to go with two. You're number two? Okay. The spectrum of success. That's actually the one you, you, I like that you had told me earlier. So cool. The spectrum of success. So the spectrum of success. success. Exactly. And it's funny because I always think that people go up to other people and they're chasing this thing called success or they work so hard to be successful and no one really defines what success is, right? Like no one's told, okay, if you go out in the world and make this much money and have this many houses, then you're successful. But you know, I see success as just being happy and other people don't see it that way. So what would you say your definition of success is? So I have a pretty, I'm a very succinct, straight to the point person. This is, this is my, and most people are going to disagree with me probably because I'm basic like that. But my definition is whatever you set the goal to be. And if you do that said goal, you're successful. Okay. Now that could be subjective to so many things as simple as get off the sofa to own a million dollar business. But if your goal is X and you get to X, you're by my definition successful. So like I said, most people might not agree with me on that, but hey, that's how I look at it. That's true. That's true. And do you think success is something that's, what word do I want to use? Like life success. Like what would you define as life success based on or versus situational success? Well, life, I hate to go back to that definition I just used, but I'll get more a little more broader with it. Like people look at life success as what type of job, career, income, family. So those things could look a lot of different ways. But I think to get to that point, to achieve it and what that looks like is you putting yourself through the the work, the uh, endeavors that get you to that point, because nothing, whether it's big time success or just passing a class, it takes some kind of structure, goal and a route that you have to constantly persist on, because a lot of times people get deterred because it don't happen on day one. So to get to that ultimate success, you got to understand there's going to be a lot of, I use the word, cumulative ups and downs that are going to add up to the bigger goal. That's true. And that's something I started doing like a wellness workshop. Um, and I tell people all the time, like dreams are wishes. Like you can't control your dream, but you can control your goal. Right. And as long as you're working towards that goal and you have your daily practices set and you're following those daily practices and reaching them like eventually you're going to get somewhere 
right? And then those daily practices will turn into like your short-term goals and you'll just start reaching your goals and turn into habits and your life will kind of like snowball effect, but in a positive way, right? And a lot of people think of success as just, okay, well, I want this, so I'm going to go out and either buy it or, you know, tap a button and like, you know what I mean? Like everything is such instant gratification. Yeah, That's the word I'm looking for. People are so focused on instant gratification that they lose track of what their goals even are. Like they don't even know what it takes to reach their goals or be successful. They just know like, okay, well I want this and I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I want it and it should just come to me. Well, you kind of got to blame your brain and evolutionary psychology because our brain wants to take the simplest route to get anywhere, whether it be physically or mentally. So it's like we were wired for that because in ancient times, it made more sense just to do the simplest, shortest way to survive. But now we have the luxury of a safer world, I'll say. It's not perfect, but it's safer. So now that kind of hurts us because of going back to what you said with instant gratification, if we don't get it instantly, now our brain says, hey, man, th th this, this needs to be simple. Just stop. Just do the simpler thing. And let's be real. That's usually what happens. You probably have friends, families, associates that that you see, how do you give up? So he's like, well, it didn't work out. Maybe it was the first try. Maybe it was the 15th try, but it depends. Whatever that goal is, it, it, some goals only take a few tries. Something simple like say, I want to maybe get in shape. That's going to take a month or two, maybe three, maybe a year. But you say be a successful business person or whatever, that might take a decade. Right. And a lot of people don't, I guess the first step is understanding what that goal, like I said, you, the goals or wishes, whatever you want to call it, you need to understand what they even can, is comprised of, right? Right. Right. A hundred percent. Because like you just mentioned, I want to be a successful business person. Everybody has their own definition of like what a successful business person is, right? Like whether it's a certain amount of revenue coming in, whether it's a certain number of like the profit coming in, right? Because revenue and profit aren't always the same thing. Like it could be the amount of clientele. It can be the partnerships that you have. And it's so hard really tuning in and defining like what you think success is because there's so many different meanings of it. Right. And even like every different field has a different measure of success or like what a successful business would look like, you know? Yeah. People get stuck on outcomes because outcome goals, like you said, like there's a certain level of control you have, but then a certain level you don't. And I think outcomes, you have to have them. You need to know what the end should look like. When I finish this endeavor, this task, this is what should happen. Cool. But after that, you know, reverse engineer and see what are the processes day to day, week to week, month to month. Because people always talk about because it's more glamorous, like going back to success. It looks better to know when I finish X, Y and Z, I'll have the money or I have the, the wins or I'll have whatever product or insert outcome goal. But they never look at, OK, get up at 6 a.m. or going to back the business. Understand that you're probably going to invest tens, maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars for you make one profit. Because I'm glad you said profit versus revenue, because a lot of people who get into entrepreneurship, they don't look at revenue. And my favorite rap group, Outkast, um, Big Boy had a line on a song. Uh, he said, it's not how much you make, it's how much you spend. Mm -hmm. Look at the biggest businesses. Most of them, Amazon, Apple, they have huge payrolls. They have huge uh, R&D departments where they're spending billions of dollars to make trillions. Now, that's obviously the big extreme, but someone like, say, us who are a small growing business that could look in a similar way, like you spend tens of thousands to make hundreds of thousands, but how many people want to spend tens of thousands with zero return for a year, two years, sometimes five years? Yeah. It ain't for everyone. Yeah. And it takes a certain, I don't know if it's drive. You mentioned resiliency a lot. Like, I don't know what it is to, 
that separate the big businesses from the small businesses, right? Like what even defines like being able to keep spending money? Okay. I'm going to spend $10,000 on this. I'm going to spend $50,000 on this just to make hundreds of thousands back. Like, I wonder what it is that like the mindset that you have to have. I think maybe that's it. Cause it's a different, it's a different mindset. It goes back to what you say with delayed gratification. That's one part being able to hold off is also being able to walk into something that has a high failure rate. Like most people are risk adverse, especially with finances. Like most people rather say, I'm going to save this money just so I can know I have something for a rainy day or whatever. And as an entrepreneurship, you still have to have some sort of consciousness of like saving. But at the same time, you, you do have to, cause I'll give you a, a real life anecdote from my own life that I worked with a company and I was a consultant. They paid me a monthly uh, salary to do what I do with uh, mental uh, performance, economic performance for their business. And basically they were worth hundreds of millions. So watching how they operated and I was very cool with the CEO. And basically he would like sometimes vent to me and some of the problems he was telling me were things I was going through and going to the point of saying, what is the difference between the big billion trillion dollar businesses like Apple and Amazon versus someone like us who are trying to get to the bigger goals. It's like the only difference is that they just have bigger risks and bigger losses, but they still have the same risks and same losses that we do. It's just bigger. So that made me actually feel good. And anyone who's watching who's in some kind of endeavor, whether it's business, school, life, got to understand there is people, if you're an athlete, there's pros who are going through what you're going through. It's just at a bigger scale. It doesn't mean Oh, how can I get like the top pros? Yeah, you're probably going through what they're going through and going back to business is like the success we talk about. All these people went through what you're going through. So that put me at ease personally because he was saying literally, oh, we have to put in X amount of millions for this new endeavor, this new project they're working on. But if it went through how it's supposed to, they'll make that back tenfold. But there's a possibility that it might not go anywhere. And with us, we do the same thing, right? You take trips to maybe meet someone and network and get a potential partnership. And it could go great and you get it or you don't. And now you just spent maybe five hundred to a thousand dollars on the trip for maybe two days after a week. You could have been doing something else. Right. But that's the thing. Going back to the point, original point is most people aren't willing to do that. And that's why they're like, why are more people getting, quote unquote, like I said, I'll use a finger quote too. success. It's success. <laughs> I think success, it always deserves a finger quote. But there is another thing that you mentioned, the reverse engineering, which is super important. And even like the risk factors that we were just talking about, like it's hard to backtrack and, you know, talking about reverse engineering from setting a goal. Okay. I want this goal. Now, what are the steps that I'm going to take to reach it? Or I'm going to take this risk. Now, if I do X, Y, and Z, it's going to come back tenfold. But if I do A, B, and C, it's not like the planning process of it is something that I don't know. Like, how did you <laughs> figure out how to reverse engineer? See, with me, I'm I'm weird because in a good weird, like I like to call myself weird in a good way because it's like I like to look at things, like say reverse engineer. So I like to start from the end. When I used to make music back in the day, I would write the end of the song first and say, how do I want to finish this? And then I'll start it. So I do the same thing. So whether it's training my clients like athletes, military, or where it's consulting, doing mental coaching, I always think is where should they be at the end of this? And that's the, I think that's the easiest part. Most people can think of how to end it or how to win it or whatever. I want to win this much or I want to get this much money. I want to get this much uh, a degree, whatever it is. But it's always the hardest part is how we get there. So going back to that, it's like I always looked at it as, okay, what are the steps? So I look at people, a lot of people do this. They look at the people who have already done it. But I think where I differ from most people is I don't just look at the, the wins that that uh, example person has. I look at their losses too. 
Because uh, I, I personally think the losses tell me a better story. Because, yeah, work hard, stay consistent. We already both said that. That's part of it. Obviously, we all need to be consistent because you can't get anywhere if you stop. But at the same time, what if things go wrong? Do you know how to adapt? So if I look at their failures or their losses, I know now, okay, these are potential things that could happen that I should account for. So I know to implement things that either can negate those uh, hindrances or maybe even purposely put myself in a chance where that hindrance could happen just so I can either, one, get it out of the way. Because I hate to say it, for those who want to go into entrepreneur, I think we'll, that's kind of been the theme of this because success and entrepreneurship go hand in hand or the goals of it. But it's like, if you're going to go into this business, don't go into it think it's going to go to A to B without any hitches. I think that's another thing. I've had, I had one business partner that we no longer associate it, and he was the opposite of me. He was like, I don't want to do it unless I know we're getting something out of it. That you can't look at as a business owner to any level. You have to understand there's going to be projects, endeavors that will cost you money. You get zero clients, zero leads. It's not because you want to fail. I'm not saying go out there. Yes, I want to fail. But it's more like, understand that's going to happen. So when it does, you're ready because let's talk about back the mental side. We're human. We get deterred when things don't go our way. I'm not saying don't get down. It's, I get down. You get down. We get down. But just know that it's not like a bad thing. Like you don't hope for it, but just know that's like with sports. I like to use sports. We both are athletes. Like when you lose a game, do you quit the team? Like some people do, I'm sure. But is that going to be someone who's going to be a better athlete? Same thing with business. I'm not going to have a bad week, bad month, bad year even. I've had years. Where I made zero or even old money going back nine years when I made profit and it's fluctuated both now and back when I started. So it's not like, oh, Nick, you had a better point. Now you're good to go. It's like, nah, I still have those same problems. It's just now I'm at least better equipped to, to accommodate them. So that's why I think you really got to be ready for those hindrances and almost not. I don't want to say wish for them, but be optimistic that, hey, these can happen. So let me get ready. Right. Like prepare yourself before it happens. And like I did pretty much the same thing, like, okay, where do I want to be? What do I want the end goal to be? And how do I get there? And I think a lot of the times when I was overcoming the hindrances and preparing for the hindrances, one way that I kind of, um, prepared myself for them was to look at them differently, right? Like you said, there are going to be times where you put like $200 into a project and expect like 500 back. But there are also times where you put maybe 500 into a project and get nothing back. Right. And some people will consider that a failure, like right off the bat, but just doing it for the experience. Right. And like seeing what it's like. And I know I put together like a book signing event just to see like, okay, well, what is a budget? Like, what do I actually need? How would I run it in the future? Like if my budget got bigger, which is the goal, like, you know, how would I work with that money? Just doing it as like a test run. And I think a lot of people aren't, um, I don't know if they get focused in the wrong thing. Would you say that people get focused in the wrong thing? Maybe. Um, they want the highlights of entrepreneurship versus I'm not saying you don't want those. I want those too. I want to be on a yacht chilling one day, but I want to also know that like, like you said, you, you got to expect that there will be times where this is not going to look how you want it. Right. Right. And my head, the first thing it was like cosmetic. People want like the cosmetic business that looks good on the internet and is like pretty to the eye. It looks good on paper, but I think the, the best entrepreneurs don't do it for like the money or the fame or anything else. They just do it for the experience and like the process of it all. They want to solve problems. True. A true entrepreneur should be a problem solver. Like, the money is a byproduct because obviously once you find your solution, you're going to monetize it. That's obviously what a business does. But 
like you said, they don't do it for the sake of like, yeah, I'm going to make millions one day. Of course, it's the process to get there. But the fact that if you find a solution, like let's just use a perfect example. Um, Henry Ford is talked about a lot and he's always associated with the uh, the invention of the car, which is not true. He didn't invent the car. Matter of fact, there there's been numerous motor vehicles that preceded Henry Ford. Uh, actually, one of them was named Carl Benz and you probably heard that name before, Mercedes Benz. So he's actually noted for the first modern car in like 1887 or something like that. So off of Carl Benz back to Henry Ford. Well, his real claim to fame is what most people confuse with him inventing the car. He didn't invent it, but his um, innovation was he, he said, let's make interchangeable parts for the cars. Because back in those days, once it broke down, you had this big clunk of machine, it was done. But he's like, okay, we have different parts we can interchange when they break or malfunction. Then we can just keep the same base car and now just change out the parts. So think about the cars we have right now, right? So if your, your brake pads go out, you can change the brake pads. If your engine has some problem, you can change parts of the engine. So that's where his money was made. And then he, he revolutionized how the um, production of the car was made with the assembly line. He didn't invent the assembly line, but he was like, let's take these, these aspects. And that's what a true entrepreneur is. They're not necessarily an innovator. You could be, but they're more so taking innovative like ideas of things that already exist. And that's what people, I think, should do is find out what you want to. It doesn't have to be major like that either. It could be like, okay, I know people need uh, shirts. So let's go something very basic. And it's true. Most people need clothes. You shouldn't. Well, you you get in trouble if you walk outside without clothes on. But basically, you know that's a need. Now, it's not going to necessarily change the world in a, I invented the first automated whatever, but it's like, I know people need shirts. I found a supplier. I got a good price. I sell these shirts. They don't have to be designer. It could literally be just be white shirts. You know what I mean? And it seems so mundane, but you know, it's funny. The most, like the richest people, those are the type of businesses that are making the most money. The ones that they make one little simple thing. But matter of fact, I'll give you another side note to the side note. You, we talked last time, I have a lot of these stories, but I was at the uh, gas station a few years back and I was um, pumping my gas and I was just in the car. I don't know why I was sitting there, but I was waiting for something, I guess, a text to decide where I was going to go to a client or something. So an ice truck, like bags of ice, pulls up and I see him unload all the ice into the machine where the, they lock the ice bags at the gas station. I'm like, wait, never thought about that. There's, there's actually companies that supply this and it's ice. True. It's ice. You can go to your refrigerator, press a little thing get ice but that's actually an industry and it's nothing glamorous about that like i think going back to what we said the cosmetics everybody wants to be the next elon musk mark zuckerberg invent the, the thing that changes the world but i guarantee whoever owned i don't remember the name of the company it was on the truck but whoever owns that company or companies or whatever that stocks the ice at all these gas stations they're probably billionaires that's true now us we're a little different our industries is a little more like it does require a little more creativity innovation because it's a different aspect so we chose i guess that route but i would say if you just want to be an entrepreneur find a solution that you care about to some degree and you don't have to care honestly i doubt that guy's like all my life i wanted to be an ice salesman or, or <laughs> ice supplier he might have i doubt it so yeah so maybe they should like you said, i like use i like that word cosmetic the cosmetic aspect of business or or, or success because honestly, it's usually the simple, basic things that get you there. That's true. And even thinking with clothes, like it's the little like cuts and lines that like one company does that no one else does. And everyone's like, oh, I want that one. You know? Do you think that it takes like a certain personality type to be an entrepreneur? Yes, definitely. You have to be very conscientiousness. So high on that. Those aren't familiar with that. That's being goal oriented, some form of perfectionism to a degree, not too much need to be able to be diligent, like not giving up, obviously. 
um, very, very low on neuroticism because people who don't know neuroticism, that's people are highly stressed that people who are high on neuroticism typically just lose their minds when things don't go their way. So you need to be very low on that personality trait. So conscientiousness, that's being diligent, goal oriented, low neuroticism being more so not averse to risk or anxious anxiety. And then also extroversion in the sense of uh, something we call social boldness, which is being able to lead, take charge of a group and be able to have social interactions that you're able to thrive off them because someone who's low on intro or extroversion will typically be depleted by social interaction. So if you are introverted, you still could be an entrepreneur, but just be mindful of you have to do some level of social interaction and networking because uh, there's a post that's going like viral meme and I shared it and it was like, um, stop getting mad when your friends and family aren't showing support. Uh, just keep going and doing what you do. And I added on the caption on my post, I said, strangers are the only people who can make you millionaires. That was my like takeaway from that, that meme because it's like strangers, honestly, like think about that. They're the only ones because even if your family and friends did want to support you fully, how much money can they really put into your business? So by proxy, you have to make strangers your priority because these are the ones, there's endless amounts of them. And I think we make mistakes as entrepreneurs when we don't get that and be like, oh, my family, friends. So going back to personality is like, you got to be able to say it's okay. Be extroverted to some degree, get out there, network, shake hands, call, text, Instagram. We have so many means now, right? Is no, that's literally how we, well, we met in person, but we reconnected through social media. social media. So I saw, I think I saw one of your posts. I'm like, hey, let me hit you. It's been like a year since we met and whatever. So I wanted to follow up because you emailed me back in, I think, December. And I think I missed that. Then I hit you back. So we were playing tag. And then I missed that. Exactly. So <laughs> the, the, we're literally sitting here because we had to step out. Like I'm a very introverted person outside of what I love. I'm extroverted for this stuff. But outside of this, I'm to myself, I'm low key. But I understood that at a young age, like you got to get out there and put yourself in a position because if no one can see you, you can't sell what you're pushing or get your service or whatever or content out there. Exactly. And I was always thinking about it this way. Like there are billions of people in the world, like your family and friends make up maybe like 100, 200. If that, if you're that social, that's, I feel like that's a pretty social person to have that many like acquaintances that will really look out and support, which is good if they do. But. Let's say even if you set your say your product or service is very high quality premier service, premium service, and it's like five thousand dollars. So if those two hundred people all support it for five thousand dollars, you'll make a good little chunk of change. For sure. But it ends there. You're not gonna keep buying it. Like, you know what I mean? So having the millions of people that are possible customers, like you talk about business market share, right? I think a lot of entrepreneurs uh either overestimate the market share or underestimate it. Like they underestimate it, they don't realize there's bigger uh size to the market so you can actually branch out further and they only put this niche group like with like i work with sports psychologist students who just graduate and i consult with them or just drop some knowledge if they ask and i tell them you gotta look beyond athletes because sadly athletes especially youth they don't have money it's usually their parents paying for it and if they're they're higher level they're broke college students if they're pros they want it free so guess what your market share is too small i found most of my uh, revenue coming from corporate wellness law enforcement. I've done some stuff with military. I still work with athletes, but I found like the business needs to stay open for me to work with anyone. Right. And then the other side is they have the uh, too big market share. Everyone's my client. I can work with everybody. True. But how many people can you really get if you're shooting for all these different targets? So yeah, knowing your market, either knowing how big it could be and expanding or knowing that you need to narrow it down is very key too. Wow. I never even thought about it like that. Yeah, it, it, I've learned this through trial and error. Trust me, I didn't wake up 
yeah. one day and just knew this. I learned it from because I went too many. I went too broad early when I was trying to work with everyone. And then I narrowed it down and I focused strictly on cognitive performance for athletes for about three years. And that was my claim to fame because I was doing other things before that. But it's like this is what got me. And I said, OK, my market's too big. I need to narrow it back down. And that got me more uh, notoriety and I got to work with top performers. I got to be on ESPN and all these other platforms. And then when I finally got solidified, I got opportunities to go into the corporate world and I actually leveraged that. And that's the beauty. You can leverage other markets as an upsell because people always talk about like testimonials and stuff. And I argue testimonials are cool. I have them. But I feel uh, a person who can just show the anecdotal experiences they've had goes so much further because if I sit in front of I sit in front of city managers, CEOs, you name it, sheriffs, dep- uh, all that stuff. And when I can say, insert, uh, like I work with a guy named Dustin Poirier, he's a top, top UFC fighter. It's not to say the name drop really, it's more so to say the, the experience from this person, I'll use him only because with like say my law enforcement, it has some carryover because while they're not like fighting criminals and everything, like fighting crime, but it's like they have to have that same mindset of a fighter and that they like it from that perspective. Yeah, he's famous, that's cool. But they, they, they like that same thing with my military. So that anecdotal experience with Dustin actually carried over to a marketing standpoint from these other contracts and vice versa. Let's say I work with um, uh, corporate wellness. I can use that with other team organizations like sports and say, hey, I work with a corporation. They run their businesses like this. So I can implement those concepts with your team. So I think that's what people in our field should look at, too, is understand that your market can be grown by going to things outside of sports when it comes to like sports or performance psychology, because they get so pigeonholed with, I want to work with just athletes, but it's only so many athletes and most of them aren't really able to afford your service. Right. And that's a really good point because yeah, mental health and athletics, like people are already paying for the sports and they're paying for like the privates and they're paying for the extra lessons and conditioning classes. And then you get to college and you're not paying for anything. Like when you go to college and you play a sport, like everything is getting into you, like the clothes, traveled, food. And then once you get to a professional level or outside, it's like some one, the population decreases a whole lot after college because compared to college, there are not that many, not that many athletes go pro. And then getting the athletes that do go pro, like one, they have managers who have people. So like it's gone. Yeah. And like being resilient enough to like expand and contract your, um, the population you want to work with is important. Yeah. And we did personality types in entrepreneurship. What about, do you think it takes like a certain personality type to be an athlete? Oh yeah. It's almost, compared to entrepreneur. It's almost (laughs) the same things. Honestly, think about it because you're an athlete, I'm an athlete. The, 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 let's go with the most cliche one, never giving up, being consistent. You have to be that in entrepreneurship. You have to be that as an athlete. So that goes back to that conscientiousness. Like you have to be able to say, this is my goal. If it gets moved off, off tilt, I still need to figure out how to keep going. Because going back to what we said previously, it's going to happen. You're going to have a game where you do your best and you still lose. Like, so you did um, competitive cheer and what else? Yeah, Anything else? Acrobatics. So. I think that's because so we both can relate to this. And so I'm a track guy. I played football, obviously, but track was like, I actually like track better. So going back to competitive cheering, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm not a big uh, knowledgeable of this sport, but I understand that there's a lot of like subjectiveness to the scoring sometimes. So that's why I want to use that because (laughs) with track it's very objective. I run faster or jump further. You cannot, you can maybe argue. No, no, I don't really think there's a way to mess that up, but going to, cheer 
the subjective of was this routine judged better? So imagine on video, you watch it back like we did everything flawlessly. We've never performed that clear and clean. But then you get a lesser score than a team that didn't. And it's like, wait, what? So that has to build some kind of resilience because now it's like I did my best, technically better than I've ever done or our team has ever done. But we still lost. You have to be diligent there, you know, so. I think there's some uh, commonalities for every sport, like the general stuff, like going back to that, that mental toughness, staying focused, um, well, bouncing back from adversity. Those are always going to, I think every sport has to have that, that's obvious. But I think some aspects are different because going to say like a, a team sport, even to an individual sport, because track, I did that, that's an individual sport, but I also played baseball and football, which are team sports. And I can tell you, I was a different person in, in each one because as a track athlete, I was a little more selfish because even though as a team you can win because of the points for each player or a runner, but I was more worried about, okay, I jumped furthest, I ran fastest, I won my events. Ooh, like, does the team win overall? Sure, well, maybe, maybe not, but I got what I needed. But football is the opposite. I would do anything regardless so my team could win, or if we lost, I would still put in that same. So it's like that right there is, is, is different because you, you have different stakes. Like, as a football player, if I miss my assignment, you can still maybe have a good play. Like, let's say I was supposed to block this. Well, I was a defensive back, so I didn't play on offense. But say a receiver is supposed to block somebody and they don't do it, that uh, person running the ball might still be able to score. But in an individual sport, if you mess up, there's no really excuse after that. You're just done because it's only you. So I think that that's where it might differ that you have to be more uh, open. So that's a personality trait, agreeableness that a lot of people. I think Rubenis gets misconstrued. It's not supposed to be like, because people say, oh, it's more like being a pushover because you typically go with the flow. And I wouldn't say it's really that. It's more so being concerned with uh, others in your group. So someone who's high on agreeableness probably would do better as a team sport athlete because they're going to understand I have to be open to other thoughts, other people's emotions, other people's play and skill versus what an independent or individual sport is more like, I don't have to be as agreeable because I just need to do what I need to do and get what I need, honestly. So yeah, these are good questions because. Looking at the personality side of sport, I don't think, I don't think it's uh, talked about at all, really, at least to this degree, because it's usually like, if it is psychological, it's more so just mental toughness. That's, and I love talking about mental toughness like anyone else, but I think all these things recovering make up the mental toughness as a whole versus just saying you got to do, you don't. It's like, nah, these personality traits have to be known and observed to see how 
mentally tough or resilient someone is. So you got to know all this stuff, I believe. Yeah, so people, so getting to like, you know, like type theory versus trait theory. So I would say technically you would have all those personalities because everyone has some level of all. Think of it like a scale from, from zero, not at all, you completely not it. Well, no one's a zero, right? But let's start at zero and then 100, completely whatever trait. So out of the big five factor model, there's um openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and eroticism. So it's like going what you were just saying. Some people have that leadership ability. They're able to take charge guide so i would say that's a person probably high in uh extroversion higher in conscientiousness being able to lead goal-oriented but you probably have some level of neuroticism like you're still gonna have apprehensions and doubts but you probably let's say you're a 30 and someone else might be a 70 do you want that person who's a 70 on neuroticism who who freaks out anything goes wrong as your leader probably not so it's like i would say yes everyone has those traits and all those traits will show up but you made a good point you need to be able to put them in the places, I guess that's the, the takeaway I take from what you said was perfect, was you need to put them in the places where it makes sense for the team. Because that person's high on eroticism, they have a role, like they, they you need some caution. You, you can have every player like, go, 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 and don't think about the, the risk. Because in a sport, that can mean a team failing, that can mean injury, it can mean a lot of bad things. So you do need that person who's going to be more cautious of the risk. But then you need someone who is going to take that charge and take that chance. So you do want to have a balance of all of that. But I think that's the hard part, coaches, because obviously we are in this field. So most coaches don't know this stuff. And I'm not saying they have to get a, a dang PhD in psychology, <laughs> but they should understand at minimal these traits because they can identify them when they're, they're either recruiting as a college or even highest pros could take this in consideration. I don't know if they do. Or they probably do some form that I would hope they put millions of dollars into these guys, right? But um, for, from the youth level, that's probably the level you work with the most or know about the most and I work with a lot is if you can simply just understand if Jimmy or Lisa, whoever, they tend to get frustrated when things don't go their way, you can coach them better now. Because now you know, instead of just getting, Jimmy, why are you always freaking out? And said like, okay, let me understand. Okay, I have to come at, not say you coddle them or baby them, but you come at them in a way that makes sense for their learning or their uh, personality type.
Yeah, so these things I think are very key. Any coach can benefit from knowing the surface. They don't like they don't have to get deep deep into it, but they know the surface value of these things. I guarantee their coaching will improve because now they know one where to put the players or the athletes, and two how to coach these athletes. Not everyone's going to respond to Johnny. Just go out there and do it. That person, like you said, like yourself, you probably can respond to that because you you take charge, you you take initiative. Some people aren't going to do that, so you need to. Not necessarily hold their hand, but you gotta kind of guide them more. Cause a lot, I think most coaches just throw every kid into the just take charge and do it. And if they don't, they see him as a bad athlete. And it's like, no, maybe they just need to be understood. And then guess what? If you're seven to say 12 years old, this might deter you to keep playing. You might have been the next superstar, but because you mentally got booted out because the coach thought you were too weak or too soft, it's like maybe you just need to understand how to coach me. And I'm putting that like people might argue with me, like, oh, you need to toughen them up. And it's like, yeah, they need to be tough. I'm not saying that, but understand what you're doing. Like, there's things that are very valuable in this world that could break. Do you sit there and say, nah, I'm just going to let them do what they do and they're fragile? No, you're going to make sure you take, right? You're going to take care of it and hopefully it can get to where it needs to be. But For me being an athlete, mm-hmm. personally, I was like you. I was a type that a coach could chew me out. I could mess up. I would easily get over it. Not because I just was impenetrable to like defeat. Like I didn't know none of this stuff when I was a teenager, or even a, a, a young kid athlete. I just, for some reason, my mindset was at least somewhat like this. It looked like, okay, if I messed up, maybe I need to figure out how to be better. I didn't know what that exactly looked like at seven years old or 12 years old, but I knew I had to figure it out. And low key, I would. And I'm, I'm 34. So I grew up when the internet was really starting to kick off. So I would go online and we had something called askjeeves.com. Have you ever heard of that? Dang, I feel old now. I'm playing. <laughs> but so askjeeves was one of the many search engines. So Google came out, I think, in 2000 or 98, but it wasn't like what it is now. But there was one, Yahoo was one, Bing was one. But askjeeves was cool because it had a commercial. And it was like a, a cartoon butler. And that was like, as a kid, that, I was like, oh, that's cool. So you would literally ask, well, on the commercial, they would literally ask a full-on question. Now we just type in the keywords, right? But I would literally type, hey, Jeeves, how do I run faster? Hey, Jeeves, how do I uh, jump further? Hey, Jeeves. And he would bring all these uh, articles that at the time I didn't realize were like peer-reviewed exercise science journals and, and pages. And I'm reading these at like 12, 13 years old. Barely understanding a plyometric exercise has shown that dynamic rate of force development. Mind you, I'm 12, 13 years old. I'm, I'm a little kid still. So I'm reading these, but what I could understand, I tried to replicate and I did. And funny enough, that same summer when I started doing that, I won the, I was uh, the county champ from right here in Broward County. So you've been here long enough. South Florida is a pretty high level place. So I was a top uh, long jumper in Broward County in middle school. And it's like, I was already athletic, but the things I learned. So my mindset was like, that's an extreme, I guess. Like not everyone was going to do that or will do that. But it's like the simplest point is understanding that if you mess up, there is a way to overcome it. That could look as simple as just try again or be more intricate as read a dissertation on plyometric training and performance. Now, that, like I said, that's extreme. But my mindset was always don't take it to heart. It's just there's another way I could do this. And that's how I guess it developed me myself. 
I had some good coaches I could say through the years, but I had some not so good coaches who didn't understand, but I always said, okay, if you say, Nick, you messed up, F you this, cussed me out, I'll just be like, all right, got it. Let me go figure this out either right now in the, the, the meantime, like what I got to do, what I got to do. Or after this game, stay in it, then go back to the drawing board and get better. And next time you see me at practice or the next game, it, it'll be a leveled up. That, that was my mindset. So that's how I got through, I guess, my athletic like uh, defects or whatever. And do you think that's something that you had to learn or something that helped help you out? I think it's both, 50-50, only because we all have a predisposition to some level of like initiative, innovation. I'm a firm believer that every skill we have, whether it be physical, psychological, emotional, whatever it is, social, can be improved. It's just where do you start? And I use an analogy. Let's use LeBron James. He's 6'9", 250 pounds of solid muscle, jump out the gym, great basketball player. Now, I'm using him as an extreme because you could argue those bare traits of him being that big and that athletic did most of the work. I would say yes and no. That's why I say 50-50 because there's other 6'9 people built just like him who didn't make it. And if they didn't make it, they didn't do what he did. So then you got to argue there's another part of this. So that's why I would say like there is an innate physical and uh, mental uh, baseline that we all have, but it, it can be improved. Now, some ceilings are lower than others. Like some ceilings might be this high. And once they get there, that might be their capacity. Some ceilings might be this high. But I would argue most humans on this earth do not even try hard enough to even get halfway to their ceiling. Let's be real. Most people will die off this planet and probably not even got to a tenth of the level of their ceiling. Not because they don't want to, but they don't know how to. So that goes to the other side of your question is they have to actively learn this stuff, too. So you have to have that baseline. Like, can I even do it? Which we all can to some degree might not be the highest. But then you got to go on your own initiative and figure out, OK, how do I get there? That could be hiring a coach, a trainer, a psychologist, whatever it is. You got to figure it out or do it on your own. That's harder, but still doable. What's interesting, every natural athlete we can think of through the history of modern sports, I guarantee you all of them, or most of them, I won't say all, I don't know, but most played multiple sports. So that might be a part of it too, because take um, using LeBron James, Tom Brady, um, uh, Roger Federer. There's so many of these guys you can name that are considered great in whatever respect the sport. Almost all of them played multiple things. And I think that's why you say it a natural they, they only appear natural because, like you said, they're exposed to these diverse training protocols. So they get bits and pieces that help them in other sports. So I, I would argue that natural does exist. It does. But the worst thing to a natural is to say they don't work. So that's why it's like the ones that fizzle out are the ones who didn't have that diversity of training, diversity of experience. Because let's be real, most people who fizzle out is literally always because they didn't put in the work. I know it's cliche, but they didn't put in the work. So it's like I was all American in high school. Guess what? At college, almost everyone was all something, all state, all county, all America, all world. So it's like you're not special. So you be able to dunk on five, seven uh, JV freshmen in high school in your 6'10", that won't fly when the guy you're playing at 
Duke or wherever big school, he's 6'10 or he's 7'2. What you going to do now? So that natural stuff I feel is dangerous because there's a lot of coaches who will coddle those kids and actually make them become more of that like lazier or entitled athlete. Because every year, hey, this is my best guy or he's going to the league. Like you hear that for 15 years, you're probably going to start believing it. So it's a slippery slope, I think. See, I'm a bad example of these things because I'm an outlier in these because I was not the typical athlete who was like, I loved it. Don't get me wrong. But it's like it wasn't like everything to me, if that makes sense. Like I definitely was a go getter in sports. I definitely worked hard. I trained my butt off. I did extra even after practice, but I wasn't married to it. So there's a term I, I got to figure because I've talked about this on numerous podcasts. But I got to figure out who said it. I heard it years ago. It said an athlete dies twice. So. What I added to that, I love adding to, to quotes because I just like creative stuff, but I said, the athlete dies twice. So I added, so we got to get ready for the first funeral. And a lot of people don't get ready for that first funeral as the athlete death. We get ready for the real funeral, sadly, but that's life, right? That's actual death. But we don't get ready for the, the athlete's funeral, meaning what do you get prepared for when that career is over? It could be high school. A lot, 99.7% is high school. Another 0.2% is going to be college. And after that, eventually you're going to end your pro career. So if you were that 0.2% to make it pro, even that's going to end. It might be two years, might be 10 years, might be like Brady or whoever like that, 20 years. But it's going to end. And using Brady, he typically, he's a perfect example of, I think, a bad association with athletic identity. Because while he's a great athlete, he didn't really want to give up the game. I'm not saying it cost him his marriage, but I feel it played a role. So, yeah, so me going back to your main question is I got over it because I wasn't that married to it to the point that it became who I am. It was what I was. I was an athlete as a uh, act, but I wasn't an athlete as an identity. Like, I know it sounds contradictory, but I feel that balance is hard to find. And I, I was fortunate because my parents, they pushed me so much in things that weren't sports. Sport was just an extra thing. So that's why for me, like I said, I'm a bad example because I adjusted very easily. Like when my career ended in college, no more. I was like, I first, I first thing I said was, I got to figure out what I'm going to do next. How many guys who or, or girls do that don't do that? I would say that's the majority. And I think when we start telling these young athletes from even high school level is you can do this, have it to be a vehicle, but don't think it's your end all be all. Because guess what? You put, let's say, put your eggs in one basket. They all get broken. Now, what are you going to do? And I think I actually have a friend. I'll use him. I won't use his name, but he was a top tier athlete and he had a time struggling because for most of his life he told me he confided me and said i don't know what else I've, I've been good at because and it's not a bad thing i'm not saying don't be athletic don't enjoy it do that but it's almost disheartening and sad to hear these young people 
who have never been told. I feel that's what I take from what he told me and any other athlete goes through this is that's sad that people don't look at you more than just that because you are more than that, right? So it's like, I was fortunate. Like I said, my parents, they were the opposite. They were like, okay, you can do sports, but they wanted me to do academic stuff. They wanted me, like, that helped me, but not everyone. I, I'm realistic that everyone's not getting that treatment. It's usually the opposite because especially if you're going to even the black community, that's often seen as the out, right? That boy gonna make it. He fast or he can jump or he can throw. And I'm not mad at that. If that can get you a better life, do it. But we also need to say, but are you good at math or are you good at uh, creativity? Are you good? Whatever. Because guess what? That skill's gonna last them forever. And get, get it off my rant. Like I feel that helped me. So we just start pushing this more. And I try to do it myself as much as I can. Obviously, I have a reach, but I'm only one person. So it's like we start telling these kids, you can be more than just an athlete. Just use it as a vehicle to your endeavor, but don't let it be the only, only car you own. That's 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 a great explanation, because I don't think that gets talked about enough either, how that structure change. And you know what's funny about this, make another parallel. And it's going back to what I said way earlier about being able to take other clients, other demographics. So I had a guy who's ex-military. He was um, a Navy SEAL, actually. And they're considered top of the top. Right. And he said the same thing because when he got out and he says a lot of people get like this when they not just Navy SEALs, but just people who leave the military because it's the same structure. You have a set time to get up, set time to eat, set amount of money, set time of when you can blink. So it's like you get into the world now, go live because there's a big homeless population of vets. And it's like not saying athletes and vets have the same uh, hindrances in life, but that carryover is there. And the, that's perfect point, because if, if it's going back to the athlete, if this is what these guys are going through, these military people are going through and this is what athletes are going through. This must be a big deal. But people don't see it the same. I'm not saying to belittle either or, but it's like. We should start looking in that more because you're snatching away a, a lifestyle that these these students and these athletes have had probably for at least 10 to 15 years. 
That's a long time. And say, all right, go live in the world as I won't say a regular person, but you you are a little different. You're not better, but you are different. Any athlete who's watching this, and don't take it, no offense if you're not an athlete, you've never been a high level athlete, it's just different. You're you're not the same because most people wouldn't adhere to that kind of structure. All in all, the the fact that people don't understand that you are getting prepared for a sport and it gets prepared for life and this this uh dynamic that you're lame or you don't don't do anything fun is crazy because like those same people are probably looking at you like you're you're killing the game, right? So they didn't understand that. And it's like getting sent out into the world after this, like you said, it's just giving them a, a carpet pull from under their feet. And it's like maybe there should be like a, a class or something where every senior athlete or athlete that's entering a draft, maybe one hour a week for six weeks. That doesn't be anything crazy. That could be something that's like an exit. Cause we, you kind of do that with other courses in your major, right? You have to do a dissert or a thesis or something like that. So why not athletes have something so they get eased out and it's almost like a, a taste test of different careers or different things they can get into that maybe with their major, maybe with their sport, maybe a combination. That's what I did. I found a way to mix everything I love and make a business out of it. Yeah, so I think we covered a, a lot of things and we really hit a lot of good points, I think. And these are things I feel, whether you're a business owner, entrepreneur, just everyday life, these are things you should consider because I'm big on putting this stuff into practice. We talk about psychology, mental health all day, but no one ever really goes into the actual things we need to know. It's about education, I believe. It's not all about, you know, mindfulness and all that. That's great. Learn those techniques, learn the box breathing, learn the self-talk skills. I'm for that too. But we need to learn actually the concepts so we can make sense of it. And I always say, get your mind right. So, exactly. So, yeah. So, I guess this is pretty cool. We gotta we gotta do this again sometime. I think this could be a this could be some definitely definitely. Thank you so much. All right, thank you, and we'll catch you guys later.